Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello and welcome everyone to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth this week. Unfortunately, Mark is still unavailable this week, so I'm going to give you a solo update on what's been happening from a council perspective. And it is an important time to give you an update because we had our monthly council meeting last week and there's always so much to talk about. So I'll go through and focus mainly on the council meeting and we'll see if we've got any time left over for any other items that have been happening because it's always busy around a council week, council meeting week, but of course there's lots of things happening in the community as well. First thing I want to talk about is something of uh, huge importance historically, but maybe not that much importance to the residents of Dubbo on a week-to-week basis, our formal councillor group photo. Every term of council, it's always nice to actually have a formal group photo. And there's nice history when you look back at some of the photos. In fact, there's images all the way back to 1872 of the first mayor and the first councillors and it's nice to see those hanging up and showing a bit of that history there. So this week, you saw councillors before the council meeting all dressed up in their various gowns. I don't remember having to wear the gowns very often. Usually it's for a formal occasion such as a photo, or we actually put them on when we actually did the official opening of the new council chamber. But apart from that, I can't remember wearing them this term of council, and in, even in previous terms, fairly rare to use those or wear those. But keep an eye out for those photos. Those photos will be published and put out there, but also hung in the chamber for future councillors, future groups of people that come to your council to have a look at. So the first thing that I want to talk about from the council meeting was our community services fund. And this is a fund that we have $150,000 in that's available for community groups. And there's a range of criteria that we judge those against. And there's $150,000 that we give out twice a year. So that's $75,000 in two groups. We did have a little bit of money carry over from the last one. But this was an interesting one because there were a range of organisations that the staff recommended be funded from our community service fund or services fund. Now that comes through to a committee meeting. We look at those at a committee meeting and we make recommendations on what goes through to council to be finally resolved, to be funded. So we had our community, committee meetings two weeks ago and went through and looked at a range of those. And there were some that were recommended by the staff not to be funded for a range of reasons. One of those reasons is acquittals. If you've had a previous fund amount received from council, there's a process where you've got to acquit that fund or show where you've spent that money. And that's only fair and reasonable. We are talking about public money, ratepayers' money, so it's only fair and reasonable that any organisation that receives some of that money actually shows where that money's been spent. If you haven't done the acquittal process correctly, you haven't finished off that acquittal process, then you aren't eligible for any future funding. And again, that seems reasonable if we're going to give out money to the same organisation. We want to make sure that it's been spent previously spent correctly. One of those organisations that was recommended by the staff not to be funded was Binging Radio of Wellington. And the reason given was the acquittal process. And the so the great part about going through committee meetings before it goes to council is that the community gets a bit of an indicator about what's happening before the final decision is made. 
based on those committee meetings, Binding Radio noticed the fact that they were recommended for their funding not to go through based on the acquittal process. And so Binjing contacted the council and said that they were up to date with their acquittal process. There was one acquittal still to occur, but their date on the Smarty Grants application process, which is how you do the applications, said the acquittal wasn't due until December this year. Obviously, we're not at December yet. So some discussion went back and forth with our council staff and with Binging Radio, and the ultimate result of that was when that committee recommendation went through to council, that recommendation was changed so that the councils themselves changed that recommendation to say we should include Binging in the amounts that are being funded. So that was a nice way to show that example of looking at the funding process or any of the examples through the committee meetings and then getting the right result by the time it comes to the council meeting because that would have been unfair, certainly in the opinion of councillors, unfair of us from a council perspective to not deliver funding to someone based on an acquittal process that actually had a flawed date in the process. The other one that was discussed by councillors at length was a funding application by the WC Turf Club. Now, the WC Turf Club do some wonderful work in the community. They're a good economic driver. So this is in no way, shape or form a reflection on the Turf Club themselves. But they wanted to put some traffic treatment in, which went through the traffic committee last year. Part of that recommendation for the application was that the Turf Club would pay for the particular traffic trip thereafter. And that was approved through the traffic committee based on a range of criteria, including the fact that they were paying for it. Come this year, an application was made to our community service fund for council to cover the cost of that. Now, our staff initially made recommendations to fund that application for the Devo Turf Club. But councillors, doing their job properly and doing their research, looked back and found that the recommendation initially to the traffic committee was that the Devo Turf Club would be funding that, not council. So councillors changed the recommendation from the staff to not fund the Devo Turf Club. And again, not based on what the Turf Club does individually, but more based on the fact that the original application said that the council would not be funding that. So Community Services Fund in the end allocated $90,233.24 to a range of community-based organisations. I won't read through them all, but they're all available in our business papers. Congratulations to those organisations. I get a great amount of pleasure when I get to hand out the cheques to those organisations. Of course, the money is deposited in their bank account, but the cheque is all for show. And what I do when I hand out those cheques is I actually ask the organisations to tell myself and tell other community organisations in the room where we're doing the cheque handout about that organisation and how they're going to spend that money. And what I absolutely love is every single time when we go through that process, the community groups stand up, they say how they're going to use that money, and I think they take a small amount of money that council gives them and they turn that into huge outcomes for the community. So it is money well spent by the ratepayers for those organisations, and I look forward to doing that check handout and actually hearing from some of these organisations about how they're going to use that money. The next item from the council meeting was an item around tree planting. Councillor Shibley Chowdhury originally brought forward this motion to a previous meeting of council, but unfortunately was sick for that meeting of council, so it was carried over to this particular meeting. 
And Councillor Shadows had a few requests from the community in relation to some tree planting and getting more trees planted by the community. There's a range of ways that's happened in the past where council might have worked with community groups, might have given trees to different people for various reasons to do tree planting. But bottom line is getting more trees in the community. The budget for that tree planting activity has reduced over the years to the point where it's a small amount, may even be zero now. And so Councillor Shadery wanted to work out other ways that we could get some tree planting out there with some of our existing resources. So he brought another motion forward. And so formally, after discussion on that, councillors have requested the CEO provide a report on the potential for some community tree planting activities. But the most important part is making sure we use existing funding sources. So no money taken from other sources. How can we do some of that tree planting, work with some tree groups or some different groups, community groups, to deliver some of that tree planting, but use our existing resources, use our existing finances within our existing budget. And that's going to be a challenge for the CEO. That's the task that councillors have set him. Next item was brought forward again. This one was by Shibli Chowdhury, Councillor Shibli Chowdhury, was a Dubbo Indoor Aquatic Leisure Centre, indoor pool, indoor heated pool. It's been called a range of things. And I think ever since I first got into council way back in 2004, there's been talk about the fact that council needs an indoor heated pool of some description. Now, of course, the RSL Club does have an indoor heated pool that is used 24, sorry, 24 hours a day. That's going to say 365 days of the year. So that is available all year round, whereas the three swimming pools that Dubbo Regional Council has, one in Wellington, one in Geary, one in Dubbo, all those three pools are used for summer swimming, so about six months of the year. The discussions that have occurred with some form of indoor aquatic centre have included at various times some plans, some costings, just looking at some different concepts. What Councillor Shadery brought forward, and the game was debated at the council meeting on Thursday night, was the idea of an indoor aquatic centre, but not going out and getting a new set of plans done, not hiring a consultant to go through and, and look at the business case for that. Just have a look at the plans that we've had done in the past, and there have been a number of them. Yes, you might need to look at some of those and adjust them for inflation in terms of costing, but the idea was to take that previous information, take that previous work that's already been done, obviously seems like you're reinventing the wheel if you go out there and try and go and get new consultants to do new work, but have a look at what previous plans we've had, bring those back in a consolidated report and look at what we might be able to do with all of those. The first thing, of course, is the quantum. How much is it going to cost to build something like this? You'd, of course, want to also look at the additional running costs. Our pools are expensive now to run. They cost the community a lot of money. Yes, we receive money that comes through the gate, we receive money from some of the rides, etc. But despite that money that comes in, the cost to run the three pools is very expensive. So what we want to look at is in this is the cost to build, the cost to run, and the business case. How much does Dubbo need it? What's the requirement in the community for it? Keeping in mind that option that we've got in Dubbo, for example, of the RSL pool. So we've asked the CEO to go and look at all of that, bring that information together, put that into a report to consolidate that information and then see where we might go from there. I don't know what the answer is. It's all expensive. 
but let's have a look at that information for a start. Of course, one of the opportunities that we have talked about a lot is the renewable energy zone around the Dubbo area. You've got the Warren Bungle Shire Council, Midwestern Regional Council and Dubbo Regional Council. Those three councils together are where the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone sits. Huge opportunity there. We as a council have talked about it a number of times. We can't stop it. We can't make it progress faster. We can just sit back and let the state government and the proponents do what they're doing. But an incredibly important thing is to sit back and say, how can we maximize this opportunity for Dubbo? Now, some people are still trying to stop renewables. I've got a little bit of a news flash for them. Coal-fired power is going out. Renewables will be the way we will generate electricity going forward. It's happening faster and sooner, maybe than some people think should be happening and maybe faster and sooner than it's logical to happen. It's going ahead very quickly at the moment, but that's out of our hands. We can try and resist it. We can complain about it. We can jump up and down about it, or we can embrace it and say, how can we maximise this opportunity? And I think this council is very good at doing that. We realise it's happening. How can we take advantage of it? Now, Councillor Richard Ivey brought a notice of motion forward about a Renewable Energy Awareness and Career Training Centre, or REACT Centre, for a nice acronym there. And this was discussed by councillors on Thursday night. Again, the idea here is to take advantage of it. There's lots of things we might be able to utilise in our community to take advantage of it. I see the RES as a transformational opportunity for Wellington. Proponents coming through, spending money in Wellington, having people live there. It's probably going to be a 15-year construction period the number of people used to run the renewables is certainly lower than during construction, but there's a 15-year period where we've got this opportunity. Now, one of the examples in terms of this REACT Centre, the examples that we can see out there in the community already, is over at Parks with a radio telescope. That's owned by CSIRO. That's a scientific facility, but they've added on a tourism component as a secondary component to that. There are approximately 100,000 visitors a year that go through the Parks Radio Telescope Visitor Information Centre. So when you think about that, when you think about that number of people coming through, that number of people going to Wellington would be incredible for local tourism. To give you an idea, our zoo in Dubbo, 300,000 people a year come along. And our zoo is the backbone of our tourism offering for Dubbo. We have 1.259 million visitors that come through. Well, that's what, how many came through last year. So when you think about 300,000 coming through and then 1.259 million, so for a start, it's making up about a quarter of our offering, but also on the back of that 300,000, we're able to generate four times that activity. So you can imagine if you had 100,000 people a year coming through Wellington to look at a tourism offering, maybe you could grow that into 400,000, maybe not quite that multiple, maybe there aren't quite as many offerings in Wellington as there are in Dubbo, but I think it'll be fantastic for Wellington, it'll be fantastic for the entire region, but also good for people to learn more about renewables. And the focus for this is a couple of components. First of all, as the name suggests, renewable energy awareness. So sure, show people some of the things that happen in relation to renewable energy. Then there's also the career training aspect. Now, many of these proponents that are building some of these various 
projects down around Madangra have talked a lot about the fact that they need the ability for training. Now, where do they do that training? Well, not sure. But if we built a centre that had some training component to it, then logically they do the training here in our region. And keep in mind that there are renewable energy projects going across the state, across the nation, across the world. What's to stop people travelling from other areas to Wellington to have some of that training? Now, this RES, the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone, is the first of five RESs that the government is talking about to basically, well, they're not talking about them, they're planning them to basically provide the energy the state needs. This RES of ours is the most advanced so far. It may not be the biggest when it's all said and done, but it's the most advanced so far. So getting it right here is incredibly important. I've talked a little bit about this concept to some proponents, to the energy minister for both the state and for the federal government. And I just want to make sure that they're aware of this. So this went through as a notice of motion from Richard Ivey. Now, what was he going to do? Plan for Dubbo to build this, Dubbo Regional Council to build this? No, I don't think that would make sense. I don't think it would be the, a good use of ratepayers' money for us to build this centre. But in discussing it with various proponents and in discussing it with both state and federal government, it's all well and good to have a bit of an idea and have a bit of a discussion, but you probably need a little bit more meat on the bone to be able to show what you could do. So what Councillor Ivy brought forward was the idea of putting together a business case for a REACT centre. And that business case might talk about costings approximately, might talk about the people that would use it, the people that would visit it, might give some examples like the Parks Radio Telescope or even the Kuma Discovery Centre the Kuma Discovery Centre has more tourists, more visitors go through than the Parks Radio Telescope, but they also have 150 schools go through. Now, I remember when I was at school a long time ago, we went down to the Snowy Hydro Scheme. It wouldn't have been the Kuma Discovery Centre because that would have existed back when I was at school, but there was some visitor information program that we went through and visited and learned about the Snowy Hydro Scheme. So imagine 150 schools, even 100 schools being a busload of kids out to Wellington to look at the REACT Centre. So let's put that in the business case. Let's put a bit of this information. So rather than a bit of a discussion, a bit of a chat, let's go and get this information. Now, we're not talking about hiring an external consultant, spending $100,000 on trying to put something together for something that we're not going to bring to fruition, but just a basic business case. I'm talking about two or three page overall summary business case something that I can present to proponents, something that I can present to governments to say, have a think about this, because the bottom line is this will be funded not by council, not by one proponent, or even maybe not by one government, but I think it'll be a funding process that'll be a combination of. And those proponents, for example, if they can see training as an important part of what they need to do, then having a few of them contribute to the building of a centre that could actually undertake that training would make financial sense for them. So love the idea of the REACT centre. Good work for, from Councillor Richard Ivey, our Deputy Mayor, for bringing forward that notice of motion. And I'm really excited to see that basic business plan that we might come up with. Now, crime is always an interesting topic to discuss, and it's a really tough one for local government. Local government in this state doesn't 
control pretty much anything to do with crime. We don't control the police. We can't control police numbers. We don't control the magistrates. We don't, con or, or magistrates are independent, so no one really controls them as such. We don't control the sentencing laws that magistrates must work under, though. So it's a tough one because we want to make sure our community is the best possible place to live. So councillors did discuss crime at the council meeting on Thursday night and in discussion around that crime, it was made, a decision was made to send off some letters to both state and federal representatives to ask for more help with crime. And this isn't just a Dubbo Regional Council problem. There is crime across the state. You've only got to read the Boxar stats and see that there is crime. And we live in a modern world, so of course there's going to be crime but we'd like to see less crime and we'd like to see some more focus from the state government in various areas to see if there's something they can do about crime. Whether that's a process of more police, I think the police do an absolutely fantastic job. Do we need more police? Are their hands tied when it comes to arresting people and taking them through the court system? Do we need to see the sentencing laws changed? The Northern Territory, of course, has minimum sentencing, and there's people who argue in the pros and cons of minimum sentencing processes for some of the crimes that people might commit. I'm talking about some breaking enters, some stealing from motor vehicles, some of these opportunistic crimes. So the magistrates have got the ability, the flexibility to go from uh, essentially nothing to the maximum level of those crimes. But there might be an argument to say there might be some minimum crime levels or minimum sentencing levels there for certain crimes or certain repeat offenders. What is the outcome? What's the answer to all of this? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure if anyone's got the simple answers. If they did have the simple answers, then we probably would have already had those in place now. So we'll send off some letters on the basis of that council resolution supported by the councillors there. We'll send off, or I'll send off some letters on a mayoral letterhead to ask for some more intervention in some of these crime processes and we'll see if we get some positive outcomes. I mean, there's some letters that have been gone off before that I've sent off before, and we typically get polite responses back from the government because they know about some of these crime areas, but we've got to go through that process and see if we can keep asking them to look at some of this information. And you might have heard some discussion around a tree preservation order for Dubbo Regional Council. It has caused a little bit of discussion, a little bit of debate. And when we talk about a tree preservation order, there are different ways to look at it. Dubbo Regional Council currently has a tree preservation order called a significant tree register. If there is a tree of significance in, and we're talking about trees on private property here as, as well, or that's really the focus, I suppose, for this is on private property. A tree preservation order can be on public and or private, but the focus for these discussions we've been having recently have been on private property. So if there was a significant tree on a private property, you can make application for that tree to be added to the significant tree register. And then if anything needs to happen to that tree, an application needs to be made to council before you can do anything to it. And I'm talking about major trimming or removing that tree, so significant items. There's been a call in the community to have a stronger tree preservation order, one that captures more trees, trees that aren't always just on the significant tree register. And so there's been discussion around that, and you may have seen that in the community, around should we have a tree preservation order? What should the process be from a permit perspective in terms of the uh, application to make some changes to trees under that tree preservation order? What should be the penalties around that? 
and suppose the most important part of the discussion has been what tree should it apply to? Often it's a simplistic process of just the height of a tree. So a tree above three metres or six metres or eight metres or 10 metres or 15 metres. So for example, if you had a tree preservation order that covered every tree above, let's pick a number, 10 metres, then if you had a tree in your yard, in your own private yard, above 10 metres, and you decided for whatever reason, you were to remove that tree. It might be because you're going to build a shed where that tree is, or it might be because you are fearful that the branches are being dropped and they might hurt one of your kids running around in your backyard. It might be because you don't like the look of it or you want some sun to come through for some solar panels you're going to put up on the roof. Whatever reason you might have had in the past to do some major trimming to that or to remove that tree altogether, in the past you could go and do those things, bring in uh, professionals to do it or do some of that work yourself, but you could go and do that without having to talk to council. If a tree preservation order was in, if you were to make some sort of significant change to that tree, you'd need to make an application to council. And in making that application, there'd be potentially some sort of fee you'd pay to go and make that application. And if you just went and cut it down, there may well be some formal penalty if you did it without getting permission from council first. So that's been the discussion. There's been a mailbox drop down. There's been discussion in the community. We've used the Your Say platform in on council. And we received over 100 submissions as part of this. And so council took all that on board. Council discussed that, debated that. Always interesting discussion, especially when you start to talk about things on people's private land. But at the end of it all that, we asked the staff to go back and give us a report on what the framework for the tree management guidelines would look like if we had the intervention level at eight metres and above, or if the intervention level was at 10 metres and above. So two basic concepts there. And again, councillors were probably thinking some of the lower levels, three metres, five metres, six metres, etc., were probably too low. Eight metres, 10 metres, maybe that's where councillors are thinking, but just keep in mind this is not a final decision of council to go ahead with a tree preservation order. The idea here is to refine it a little bit further, give the community a little bit more clarity around that, and then we'll also do a survey with the community once we've got a bit more to talk about. In other words, before it was very open-ended. It was very much, tell us about the overall concept of a tree preservation order and what you think of it. This one now is just talking about getting a bit more clarity, as I said, refining it and then going out to the community and asking, if there was a tree preservation order on all trees above eight metres, how would that affect you? What would you think of that, etc. So there's a little way to go on this. Interesting discussion. What was generally decided or discussed by councillors at the council meeting was that there is a definite intent by councillors to improve the tree canopy in Dubbo. As we get a hotter climate, as we get more variable weather, having more trees in our community was generally decided by councillors as a good outcome. How you deliver that, that's always the challenge. It's all well and good to have one approach to things, but then you've got to work out the best way to actually deliver on that. So keep an eye out for that. There'll be more you'll see on this particular topic. The next one that we discussed at Council was in relation to the new Dubbo Bridge. Now, I know we've got to get, well, it's not our bridge, it's the state government doing this, a better name than new Dubbo Bridge. I always laugh about 
Australians and how we name things. You can just imagine someone looking out across a bay that had some sharks they saw one day, so they called it Shark Bay. So it seems like a fairly obvious way we name things. The New Dubber Bridge at the moment is what it's called, and that's the bridge that's probably been a, an interesting process from the state government, maybe controversial might be a good word you could use around that. And that's the one that, as you come across from West Dubber, you've got the Sarusia Bridge. This bridge will go out further past the Sarusia Bridge and then go across and join up into River Street. We've got the whole northwest urban release area. Thousands of houses were built there. It's an exciting area and a new development so close to the CBD. That's the really exciting part about all of that. We need to make sure that as we plan that, and there's been a fair bit of planning work that's been going into that area already, as we plan that, we need to make sure it's easy for people to get from that area back into the CBD. So that's a very important consideration. That bridge is under construction. No doubt you've heard some of the construction work or noticed some of the construction work that's going on down there. And if we we're going to take a road off that entrance to the new bridge and take it down to that new northwest urban release area, well, it would make sense to do it now while the construction work is underway. And we could actually take advantage of Transport for New South Wales contractor that they have in place because it would make much more sense for them while they're doing the job to have an add-on, to have a variation to their existing job, rather than going out to a new tender for this process. Now, we would like to see some type of traffic signals, traffic lights, if you like, on that entry to the new bridge that would feed into that northwest urban release area. Without traffic lights, the best you could do would be to be able to turn left off the highway into the northwest urban release area, so that might be okay, but then you'd only be able to come left onto the highway. So if you lived in the northwest urban release area and you wanted to get to the CBD, well, you probably wouldn't turn left onto the New Dover Bridge, go all the way over, join up in a river street, then come back down, say, Burke Street into the CBD. It seems like a fairly long way to get around, so you probably wouldn't do that until you take some sort of alternative route. We think a traffic signal, traffic lights there at the intersection would make the most sense. But because it's all very new, because the Northwest Urban Release Area is all very new, then it's probably not, well, we can't easily get grant funding to pay for that. And we're talking about a significant sum, possibly in the vicinity of $11 million for that signalised area there and the trip that we'd need on the bridge. So it's not chicken feed, it's a significant sum. We previously received from the last government $9 million towards the road that would actually feed into the Northwest Urban Release Area as a major trunk road. So that was fantastic for that whole area there and that $9 million obviously will be well utilised in that area. But we don't have any guarantees of the $11 million we'd need to join this up onto the highway. What councillors had to do was make a decision. Do we leave that whole area and at some stage in the future, when we need that, we go out, try and get some funding for it, and then add on that connection. Now, once that's all finished, once the bridge is finished, the contract with Abigildi, the Transport for New South Wales contractor is Abigildi, once that's all finished, then to go and add on another connection, another project, a major project, would be a much more expensive process. And I can't tell you exactly how much, but it would definitely be more expensive than doing it while they're already under construction. So councillors had to make a decision, a big decision. 
do we go and spend $11 million now and hope that at some stage, and it's a bit more than hope, we'll go through a process, but at some stage in the future, get some of that money or all of that money back in some sort of grant process, or do we leave it until we've got some guarantee of the funds? Now, part of the complication to throw in the mix there is, more than likely, we're going to need this connection. So whether we get the grant funding or not for that, we're probably going to have to build it. So if we don't get the grant funding, it'll be something that those residents, as those blocks are built over there, it might be one of the additional construction costs that we might charge developers as part of the overall money that's contributed to council for those various blocks of land. So the money might come in via that method. It might come in via some other funding scheme, but ultimately we're probably going to need that. So councillors in the end decided to go ahead, have the discussions with Transport New South Wales, have the discussions with their contractor. Obviously, the $11 million was an estimation, so minimise the cost of that application as much as possible, that, that build as much as possible, but then ultimately go ahead and plan that construction and we'll go through and look for some funding sources for, for that. Hopefully, as we go through that process, we'll get that funding and it'll look like a very clever decision to go ahead now rather than wait for later. But I can't tell you the final answer to what will happen with that, but I think the way councils have gone at the moment makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the really important discussions at the council meeting was a discussion around our community consultative committees. One of the things that's interesting, and I, I hear it talked about a lot, is in relation to who makes decisions at council. I've heard people in the past, I've even heard councillors in the past say, oh, the staff made us do that. Oh, that was a staff decision. Now, I'm not talking about who to go and buy a ream of paper from. I'm talking about major council decisions here, major strategy, major concepts. And one of the things that's really important is that councillors make decisions. You might have recommendations that come forward from staff. They might have a particular view, have an opinion on whatever it might be, but the councillors are ultimately the ones who hold their hands up at a council meeting and vote for what's happening. So as much as some people, again, councillors in some cases like to blame staff for certain things that have happened, it's not the staff that are making these final decisions. And the discussion around community committees was a perfect example of that. Now, if I go back into history just a little bit here, if we go back to the very first meeting where this council it was brought together and we had a council meeting, uh, the first ordinary council meeting, that was in January 2022. And at that meeting, every individual councillor brought forward a notice and motion of something that they were really focused on, something they wanted to improve. Everyone's just been elected to council. Nine of the 10 councillors had never served under a regional council before. So lots of new ideas, lots of new blood. Let's see what could happen from that. At that particular meeting, Councillor Richard Ivey brought forward a notice of motion to say we need to get back to the stage of having community committees again. Back in the old Dubbo City Council days, I actually thought the community consultative committees were a very important part of our general discussion with the community process. The way we get feedback from the community, the way we interact with the community, I was a big fan of the community consultative committee process. For whatever reason, the last council seemed to disband 
just about all of those committees. And so when this council started, those committees didn't exist. So Councillor Ivy brought forward a notice of motion and said, let's have a look at creating some committees. Let's do a workshop to work out what committees we need. And most important, in that notice of motion, Councillor Ivy said, and council supported it, so it was supported by a council resolution, said create those committees and the working parties for this term of council. This term of council officially ends on the 14th of September 2024. So the intention from councillors in that resolution was to create some committees and again go through to the end of the council term. So that all made sense. In March then there was another resolution of council just to tidy up a couple of things but in that it also said do a review of those committees by October 2023. So basically the council meeting in October 2023. So look at their effectiveness and sustainability and bring forward a report to council. Now the process occurred from that initial resolution in January where we had expressions of interest, oh, sorry, go back a step. We did a workshop and I remember we had butchers papers all over the wall. We looked at every committee that existed at council over the last say 10 years and talked about them, what might be needed, what committees were important. Some of those committees were very specific around a project. So for example, there was a Barden Park committee. When Barden Park was being built, the International Athletics Track at Barden Park, then there was a committee formed specifically for the construction of that particular project. So that committee didn't need to exist anymore. That's fine. So that was part of that whole workshop, that whole planning process to work out which committees we might need. We came up with 16 community committees. They were formally resolved at a council meeting on the 26th of May, 2022. Expression of interest were advertised. They went through to the 17th of June. Then there were a selection of committee members, etc. And from about sometime around late August, those committee meetings started occurring and some of them may have had their first meeting August, September, October, so around that sort of time frame. And then there was a bit of a community request for one additional committee. So at the council meeting on the 25th of August last year, there was an additional committee created. So that took the total to 17. Now 17 might sound like a lot, but there's a lot of things that council's involved with. So I was comfortable 17, they all had a different focus, all had specific things they had to do. So these committees had existed for about a year by the time it came to the October 2023 meeting. And when I say about a year, as some of those first committee meetings were in August, some were September, some were October, some were later than that because, again, one committee was added on. Now, the review that we received from our staff, there was, I would think it would be fair to say, a bit of a view from the feedback that came back about the effectiveness of those committees and some surveys that are done with community members in those that maybe they weren't delivering perfectly on what everyone would like to see. Maybe the engagement wasn't as high as we'd like. Maybe people's understanding of how the committee structure worked, maybe that wasn't perfect. But it was a process that I think we were happy to work through and keep working on that. The recommendation from our staff in that report, was a 40-page report in our business papers, was to only keep three of those 17 committees in their original format and then make some changes, including getting rid of some of those, combining them in some sort of focus groups, a whole range of changes there. Now, councillors, again, this came forward. It was obvious that the staff were thinking that it wasn't great use of their time and that they didn't see that these committees were entirely effective. 
councillors had a different view. Councillors thought these committees, sure, you can do them better, and it's very few things in life that you couldn't say we could do better, but councils were of a view that these community committees were a great way to get feedback from the community, but also a great way to make sure we were getting things right and having that discussion with people on a committee and also let those committees go back out and in their own networks, the own people that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, take some of that information back from council to open up that feedback and also involve more people in that process. So councillors were certainly of a view, a couple of views. One, it probably hadn't been enough time with less than a year with some of those committees in place. And again, some of these might meet every quarter, maybe even less than that. So there might have only been three or four committee meetings in place. So councillors have a view that maybe there hadn't been enough time to really get to the bottom of the best way to operate these. Also, councillors said, yeah, sure, some of the engagement might not be perfect, but is it a bit too soon to throw, in the expression I use, throw the baby out with the bathwater? A bit too soon to do that. Should we look at refining them? Should we look at how we can make them better? rather than throw out those committees altogether. Are there different things we could do to improve the effectiveness? Can we talk to some of the people on those committees and see how we can actually make them better committees and deliver more for our community? So in the end, directly against the recommendation from our staff, the councillors decided to stay genuine to that original notice of motion from Councillor Ivy and the initial resolution from January 2022. Councillor said, the best thing to do would be to stay true to that, keep all 17 committees through to the end of the council term. The next council meeting of, sorry, the next committee meeting for each of those committees, essentially do a mini workshop, just have a discussion with that committee and say, how's it going? How's it working for you? How can we improve them, things? How can we make it better, essentially? So do that as part of that process. And then on top of that, have a full review which might be when you might change committees after the next council election. By that point in time, these committees would be in place for around two years or thereabouts. So at least you've got a bit more information. You've had a bit of a mini workshop. You've got a chance to actually look at all of that and see how they'll run. So I think it's a good outcome. I think the community also sees that as a good outcome because the community wants to have a voice at council and these committees give them that opportunity to have a voice at council. So Good work to our staff, they put forward their view, they put forward a report, had some good information in that report, but also, I can't emphasise it enough, the decision by councillors was to keep all of those community committees. Now, as we get towards the end of the calendar year, one of the things that council needs to look at is Australia Day. We've had the discussion before and I've talked about it on the podcast before around Australia Day and what day and time will have that. So just as a reminder, the Australia Day event in Wellington will be held on Thursday evening, the 25th of January at 6.30pm and the Australia Day event for Dubbo will be held on Friday, the 26th of January at 8am. So that's the decision we've previously gone through that process. But... One of the things we need, and what I'm liking to call out to the community here, is we need Australia Day 2024 event committees. And as a process there, this is something where people 
get the applications in for Australia Award nominations, look at those applications, make the final decision on who will be the winners of those various awards, and also do a little bit of assistance with the event planning and preparation, not so much getting out there and stacking up chairs, but really just doing some things around what are some good ideas, what, what planning can we do. And you may also help on the day itself, handing out maybe some flowers to some of our new citizens, maybe doing some things there. So expression of interest for people to be on, there's a Wellington committee and there's a Dubbo committee, two separate committees. For people to be on those two committees, we've got the expression of interest out now. Community-minded people, maybe previous award winners, people that have won some of those previous Australia Day awards and want a chance to give back in some way. That EOI period is now open. It'll close on Monday, the 6th of November. And if you just go to our website, you'll see the EOI form there. Uh, essentially, it's something that you'll probably have to attend a few meetings and go through and, and help with that overall planning. So exciting time, I think. Australia is an exciting time for the communities and we're trying to make that a better time for all parts of our community and that can be something that you can help with in terms of this overall planning. Well, fluoride dosing seems to be an issue that keeps bubbling away. We obviously know about the issue with the lack of fluoride in the Dubbo water and I won't go over that process I will make a brief mention of it as part of this but also the fluoride dosing system at Wellington now you may remember several months ago there was an issue where there were some uh, problems with that and so essentially some work had to be done there was a lack of fluoride coming through in the water for a short period of time and some of the equipment had to be repaired. In fact, they actually used some of the equipment from the old Dubbo fluoride dosing system. So that process has been going, but it hasn't been going perfectly, and it really needs to have a new fluoride dosing system commissioned there in Wellington. The existing fluoride dosing system was commissioned back in 1992. So councillors engaged in South Public Works to look at how much it would cost, or an approximation of how much it would cost to replace the entire fluoride dosing system in Wellington to give some more reliability because it has been going on and off since the, that time a few months ago, back I think around June it was, when there were some problems with that. The fluoride has been in and out to a certain extent with some of the, the fluoride systems there not always working to standard. Those, that information has been reported through and will give more of an update to the community about that fluoride system and when that's been working hasn't been working. But the reality is it does need a new fluoride dosing system in Wellington and we'll engage with New South Wales Public Works to work out that one. In relation to Dubbo, we were planning, you may remember, around April next year to have that project completed and they're working through that. The contractors that awarded that contract are working through that. They've got one minor issue at the moment in that the flow output of the water treatment plant needs to be measured to an accuracy of 2% or better, so a maximum 2% variation in the accuracy of that water that's flowing out for that dosing to be accurate. So TWS Evolutions, the company that's doing that project, they've been working with another contractor, GHD, to try and get that flow rate right or to be able to measure that flow rate correctly for them to be able to add the correct amount of fluoride to that system. So that's probably delaying that project a little bit. The target is still April 2024, 
maybe it'll push out a little bit from that but I'll keep you up to date as we know more this is really hot off the press this one know more about it in relation to that flow rate system and how that relates to the fluoride dosing system but things are happening it's still working away but we're not quite there yet The runway at the Bedangra or Wellington Airport is being resealed. You may remember that there was some funding that we received from the federal government for some work to be done on the runway. Now, this is a runway that receives some air traffic, receives some drag strip traffic, so drag cars race on there as well. We have talked about this particular area down in Wellington, this Bedangra Airport or airstrip. And one of the things that's important there is we think the only way that we can justify council having that is as a multi-use facility. Once we get that runway resealed and some of the patching works that have been that have been done as well, we think that'll make for a more compelling argument for multi-events to be run there, different events to be run there. It does lose money at the moment, so it is being subsidised by the ratepayers of the regional council. But again, let's see if we can work out ways to make that a better facility and get that better. So that runway work, there was the uh, patching work and the, the ceiling work there was done. Some previous work, it was opened again on the 24th of October this year. And then it'll close again at 5.30am on Monday, the 30th of October for other resealing work. There was a, a break in the resealing work done just in some weather forecast and rain, etc. It wouldn't have been ideal to do it then. So they should be completed by about the end of the week. So closing on Monday, the 30th of October, and then take about a week to get that resealing work done. So the good news with all of that is that things are happening on the Bedangra runway. One of the things I find really interesting is that it's difficult for myself or councillors even to keep on top of every bit of commentary on social media. Now, I've said to people a lot, if you want an answer to something, send me an email, mayor at dubbo.nsw.gov.au or give me a phone call, 0418 there are many ways to contact council. You can come into council physically. You can lodge a request through the DRC and me program. The problem is with so many forms of social media and so many different sites in those different forms of social media, it would literally be, well, not impossible, but it would be very difficult to stay on top of all those comments. And I see my name pop up on it being mentioned in various sites and I, I literally do not have enough hours in a day to go and check all those various sites. So if you want an answer, send through an email, make a request through the formal DRCME lodgement system. One councillor did say that he'd seen some commentary on some sites and just wanted a, a bit of an answer on what was happening with it. So he did bring forward that to our CEO and there was some investigations done just to some checking on some different things. But Again, it just gives you an idea of that social media uh, ability to deliver facts rather than maybe not always the facts. And related to our 3D printed toilet the, in Lions Park West, the amenity block there, which again, I think is a great project and I think it's going to have 
far-reaching ramifications for Dubbo and the building industry and the housing industry in general across the state and across the nation. But there were a couple of things there. One of them was that the disabled toilet wasn't big enough for a wheelchair to get through. Now, I'd be pretty disappointed if in today's day and age, our planners and our builders and everyone involved in a project such as that wasn't aware of the requirements that we have to have for disabled access. In fact, one of the reasons we gave that that toilet block was needed to be replaced, it was past its use by date. The previous council had put it in the budget to actually replace that toilet block for a range of reasons. But one of the reasons was that it had a step up to the toilet so it would make it very difficult for someone in a wheelchair, for example, to get into that toilet. So I'd be pretty disappointed if one of the reasons we gave for replacement was the fact that it wasn't easy for someone in a wheelchair to get in, and then we replaced it with a toilet that didn't have a wide enough door. The Australian standards say that 850 millimetres is the minimum clear opening that you need for a door for disabled access. So that makes sense. There's a minimum standard, so anyone building knows what you've got to have as a certain minimum standard. And of course, the measurement of the door on the 3D printer toilet for the disabled toilet there is 920 millimetres. So we can put that one to bed, 850 is what's required, it is 920, so anyone making the commentary on social media can be confident with that. The other comment on social media was in relation to the fact that the door was locked. So how could people get into that? And I remember Mark and I had a detailed discussion on the MLAC, the Master Locksmith Access Key System, and the idea there that you've got disabled toilets across the state, across the nation as far as I know, that use the MLAC system. And so anyone that needs access to a disabled toilet has an MLAC system access key and so they can go and use that so that's a, a standard key if i go to a disabled toilet in dubbo or in orange or bathurst or sydney it's the same key that's used across the board again i assume across the, the nation uh, definitely across the state so anyone that needed access to that toilet would be able to get into that toilet because they'd have that particular key i don't remember what episode it was but if you want to go back and look at a previous episode i had a much more detailed discussion about that particular system so the people out there worried that that toilet is locked. Yes, it is locked, and it's able to be accessed by people that have the key. The other thing that was brought forward by a councillor in relation to just checking on that is the cracking. So there was some social media commentary apparently about the fact that it was cracking and what a terrible project it was because it was all cracking and all falling apart. And certainly, I know when we had some photos there with some of our staff promoting the project, we could see some hairline cracks in that particular building. And there's a couple of things with that. For a start, there is a 12-month defect liability period with the construction company that built the 3D printer toilets, a company called Contour 3D. So if there was something that wasn't good enough in that particular project, needed to have some major rectification work done or any minor rectification work, then Contour 3D would be responsible for that for that initial 12-month period. So call it a warranty if you like. So I'm quite comfortable with that. Council staff are quite comfortable with that. The second part is that we've got this process of really a whole new concept with 3D printed toilets. How they're going to work in somewhere that's got a pretty harsh climate like Dubbo. It gets pretty hot in summer and doesn't get to really super cold temperatures in winter, but it does get down to the zeros, the negative sometime during 
winter. So you've got a fair variation in temperature from season to season, from year to year. So it's not a bad way to, to test out that and see how that works because we really think 3D printing is a great solution for a whole range of different projects, again, not just in Dubai, across a, a broader range of areas. So let's have a look at how that goes. At some point in time, the intention is probably to either paint or even possibly render a 3D printed toilet. And if you see some of the hairline cracks, I encourage people to go and have a look at them. You can see they're not structural defects. But if it was painted or if it was rendered, then you wouldn't see those cracks there. I know even on something like a brick veneer house or cement rendered brick veneer house, then uh, I'm sure I said that the right way around, <laughs> a, a house, it's a brick veneer house that's got cement rendering on it. Uh, is what I was trying to say there. And you'll often see on, on a house that's constructed like that that's using good old-fashioned bricks and had bricklayers lay those bricks, you'll often see a few hairline cracks there, but they're pretty easy to cover up because that cement rendering is typically painted, and so you can quite easily fill in some of those cracks and paint over it. In fact, sometimes they're so small that even the paint itself would fill in some of those cracks. So quite comfortable with the 3D printed toilet, quite comfortable with the fact that I think we've got there a project that is revolutionary the first of its kind in this nation and we might have to look at some different processes there about what we do going forward with it but i'm quite comfortable it's still going to be standing up for a long period of time well that brings us to the end of the podcast this week but of course the most important part in fact i'm not sure if it's good or bad but some people do tell me this is the highlight for them each week hopefully there's some really important information in the podcast as well but the limerick for the week and with a bit of the information around the committees and some of the discussion around that i thought it made sense that the limerick this week was all about committees so here we go committees in dubbo you see are as crucial as a strong cup of tea they discuss and debate Make sure plans are first rate so the city thrives for you and for me. Well, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. We'll have Mark Barnes back as soon as possible, but until then, take care and I'll talk to you again in another week's time. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.